0: This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon
1: is from our series on Christ in the Old Testament.
0: Our scripture today is taken from the book of Numbers, chapter 20, verses 1 through 13. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There, Miriam died and was buried. There was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, if only we had died with our brothers um, when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes. And it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he had commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock and Moses said to them, Listen you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with the staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land that I give them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord, and where he was proved holy among them. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. By your Spirit, make yourself known to us now through the reading and the preaching of your word, that hearing we would believe, that believing we would obey, and by your grace, enter into the heavenly country which you have promised to us through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. The longest smoke break of Nicholas White's life began at around 11 o'clock on a Friday night in October 1999. White, a 34-year-old production manager at Business Week in New York City, working late on a special supplement, had just watched the Braves beat the Mets on a television in the office pantry. Those are baseball teams for those of you who are not Americans. And now he wanted a cigarette. He told the colleague he'd be right back, and leaving behind his jacket, he headed downstairs. I'm reading, by the way, Nick Palmgarten's 2014 New Yorker piece entitled "Up and Then Down." The magazine's offices were on the 43rd floor of the McGraw Hill building, an unadorned tower added to Rockefeller Center in 1972. When White finished his cigarette, he returned to the lobby and waved along by a janitor buffing the terrazzo floors, got into car number 30, and pressed the button marked 43. The car accelerated. It was an express elevator with no stops below the 39th floor, and the building was deserted. But after a moment, White felt a jolt. The lights went out and immediately flashed on again. And then the elevator stopped. And White pushed buttons. He tried to summon the maintenance staff on the intercom. Nothing happened. He managed to switch on an alarm, which sounded immediately above the elevator. And the alarm went on for hours and hours, but nobody came to help. You can go on YouTube and watch the sped-up video Of Nicholas White's hours in the elevator, he moves around like a little bug. He tries to open the escape hatch, but escape hatches and elevators are for maintenance staff to get in, not for passengers to get out. And the hatch was locked. And eventually he stops moving around and he lies down on the floor of the elevator. He used his shoes for a pillow and he laid his wallet unfolded over his eyes to keep out the light. It wasn't hot, yet he was sweating. His wallet was damp. Maybe a day had passed. He drifted in and out of sleep, awakening each time to the grim recognition that his elevator confinement was not a dream. He was stuck in that elevator for hours and hours and hours. At one point, he was able to pry open the doors, and he saw a blank wall with a number 13 painted on it with a stencil, He could peer down through a little crack and see a small flash of light in the lobby below, but he was trapped in that elevator, and at a certain point, Nicholas White ran out of ideas. Anger and vindictiveness took root. He began to think they, whoever they were, shouldn't be able to get away with this, that he deserved some compensation for his ordeal. He cast about for blame. He wondered where his colleague was, why she hadn't been alarmed enough by his failure to return jacketless from smoking a cigarette to call security. Whose fault is this? He wondered. Who's going to pay? He decided there was no way he was going to work the following week. And then he gave up. The time passed in a kind of degraded fever dream. And if you watch the videotape, for hours he just lies face down on the elevator floor. And finally, after 41 hours in the elevator, he heard a voice asking, is there someone in there? If you go on to read the article, you'll discover how much as life was affected and harmed by his time in the elevator. It's kind of a horror, slow-moving horror story of a man trapped in a liminal space. I don't know if you've heard that very useful term before. It comes from the Latin word for a threshold. A liminal space is a space that is a transition zone between two areas, like a hallway or a stairwell or doorway or an airport or a train station. Places that we go through that we have no intention of staying in for a very long period of time. And of course, there are also kind of metaphorical, liminal spaces. Times in our life, graduating from school or starting a new one, starting a new job, marriage and divorce, pregnancy, career changes, retirements. And we find those liminal spaces to be quite stressful, actually. And if we hang around in those liminal spaces for too long, it actually can do quite a bit of damage to our mental health. That was the bizarre thing about going through COVID-19, wasn't it? All those lockdowns and stuff, like this bizarre year and a half, two years of lost time where we kind of wandered around in circles waiting for real life to start up again. The book of Numbers is about a liminal space. A transition zone that should have been passed through very quickly And ended up as a slow-moving horror story where people's minds began to unravel. Shouldn't have taken very long. If you go on Google Maps like I did and plot a route from Cairo to Mount Sinai to Beersheba, it's only about 450 kilometers to Mount Sinai. And it took the Israelites about six weeks to walk that. It makes sense with small children and animals. And the next... Segment of the trip, the second half from Mount Sinai to Beersheba, that's 430 kilometers. It will take you five hours and 23 minutes to drive that. You could leave after lunch and arrive before dinner. Traveling north on Route 50M along the Gulf of Aqaba, you cross the Israeli border at Taba and you head north on Route 90. Nothing could be simpler. And honestly, numbers could have been a much shorter book. You know, what I didn't realize when I started this series on Christ in the Old Testament is that most of my preparation time is taken up simply by reading the text. I'm like, man, it's Thursday, and I still haven't finished this book of Numbers. How many chapters are there in this book? It just goes on and on and on. It could have been so much shorter. And I feel frustrated just reading this book. Imagine the Israelites actually living through these long, long chapters. It could have been much shorter because they were right at the exit door. They could feel the breeze from the street. They could have walked right on through but strangely, unaccountably, they end up turning around and spending 40 years going around and around in this desolate, fever inducing liminal space, trapped in the elevator. So close and yet so far. Does that describe anyone's life here <laughs> today? Going around meaninglessly in circles, seeming to make no progress slowly losing your mind. Numbers begins at the foot of Mount Sinai, this awesome mountain in the wilderness. They'd spent months there. God had revealed the law to Moses. There'd been this splendid theophany of God's fiery glory, and they had constructed the tabernacle, this tent of meeting where God himself dwelt. We call this the book of Numbers in English because of the census at the beginning of the book, It's actually a military census, counting the number of fighting men from which the tribes of the Levites are exempt. They're a special elite bodyguard protecting and caring for the tabernacle. They have special duties to guard and tend the purification, the sacrifices. And all the rest of the people are camped around this tabernacle. And finally, in Numbers chapter 10, the cloud of God's presence begins to move. And after a year at the foot of this mountain, the people at last are in transit. It's been a long time at Sinai. If you read through, it begins at Exodus chapter 14, the entire book of Leviticus, Numbers 10. That's 59 chapters of material. This is a huge chunk of the Bible spent on that year. And I imagine the Israelites might have been getting a little antsy, impatient to move on, but in God's mind, it's vital that they take the time to linger in his presence, stay in place, Be still, watch, and listen, and receive my instructions for life in my presence. You'll be in the promised land soon enough. It's merely weeks away. Just just stay here and listen. These families spent a whole year camping in tents in the desert. How rough must that have been? Couldn't wait to cross the river into this green leafy, pleasant land, move into their little cottages with their fig trees and their grapevines, and settle into life. It was all going to be so easy. It's like that so-called sport, t-ball. Did any of you play that when you're like four, five, six years old? I was very good at that sport. It's the only sport that I really ever had any success at. And for those of you who don't know it, it's like baseball but without the actual challenge of hitting a moving ball that's pitched to you. At home plate, there's just a sort of tube, and the ball is just sitting there on top of it. And all you have to do is swing the bat and connect somehow with the ball, or even the tube. It's a beautiful, beautiful sport for those of us who are not quite so coordinated. And this is basically what Israel was offered. Like, here's the ball, right here, the promised land. God is just going to hand it to you, and all you have to do is take it. All you have to do, guys, is try not to get lost following a huge ball of fire in the sky. All you have to do is walk outside and pick up the free bread that has fallen from the sky for you to eat. All you have to do is not put any scorpions down your pants and keep your mouth shut. Could have been so easy. And this book could have been so short. And Israel actually did manage to do this for three days. <laughs> And then Numbers 11, verse 1, the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And it launches an avalanche, an unending cycle in this book, whining, moaning, complaining, grumbling, what the old King James Version calls murmuring. These people are just walking behind Moses, and there's this muttering, 40 years of that this is the family road trip from hell with two million bratty children in the back seat moses and aaron up front threatening at any moment to pull over and just cancel this whole thing these people complain about everything they begin wailing they're actually in their tents sobbing complaining about the manna It's too boring. It's too plain. We want to change. We miss the cucumbers. We miss the melons. We miss the leeks, the onions, and the garlic back in Egypt. ah, it was so great when we were slaves. And all we want is some meat. And God listens, and he sends a whole flock of quails that just land on the ground. And the people in their greed eat them. And many are struck down by a plague. A painful lesson which should have been engraven in their memories. They can't seem to help themselves touching this hot stove over and over and over again. It's not just the ordinary people. It's not just the riffraff and the rabble. Even a jealous Aaron and Miriam challenge Moses' authority. They want to be in charge. They want to be on stage. They want the limelight. They're not happy with what they've received. And Miriam is struck temporarily with a skin disease. It's also the priests and the Levites, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, 250 other lay leaders try to start a coup. They challenge Moses and Aaron, and God causes the earth to open some of them up, and others are burned with fire that falls from heaven. Still don't learn. After that happens, the whole congregation accuses Moses and Aaron of killing their leaders, and God sends a plague to deal with them. These people never learn their lesson. Their foreheads are just solid bone all the way to the back. No matter how much they are disciplined by God, they never get it. And worst of all, at the most critical moment, the people respond in unbelief. Numbers chapter 14, where the book could well have ended, the people are at the edge of the promised land, and they choose 12 spies, one from each tribe, to go across the river and scout out the land that God has promised to them. And after a few weeks, they come back, and all of them agree. It's just like God said. This is a land flowing with milk and honey. The crops and the grapes and the fruit are just hanging from the trees and the vines. It is a beautiful, lush place. Could not be more different from the bleak and desolate wilderness that they've been traveling through. But 10 of the spies have been painfully impressed by something else. The cities are strong. They're fortified, they're surrounded by thick walls, and they're populated by these huge warriors that make them feel like little grasshoppers. I mean, these were people who had witnessed God wipe out Pharaoh and his horses and chariots, the most powerful army on earth, but somehow that's been deleted from their memory bank. And Joshua and Caleb, two of the spies, urged the people, don't be afraid, God is with us. Yes, there are obstacles. Yes, there are barriers. Yes, there are enemies. They're big to us, but they're so small to God, and God's just going to wipe them out of the way. Don't be distracted by that. But the other 10 spies spread a bad report among the people, and the people just surrender to their negativity. And that night, all the members of the community, Numbers 14 says, they raised their voices and they wept aloud. They just start crying And crying and crying. And they all grumble against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly say to their leaders, If only we had died in Egypt. If only we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only for us to fall by the sword? It's a giant trick. God wants to kill us all. And our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Can we just do a U-turn right here and fall on their knees and beg, and maybe the Egyptians will allow us to be their slaves again. They say to each other, we need to choose a leader. We need some democracy in this place. Let's pick one of us to bring us and go back to Egypt. Right on the edge of the promised land. God has placed the gift right in their hands, and all they have to do is close their fingers around it. Could have been so easy. And yet they fling the gift away. God's judgment for their unbelief is that this whole generation, everyone 20 years old and older, is going to leave their bones in the wilderness. Only Caleb and Joshua, the two faithful spies, will enter in. The whole generation's going to die. And that gives that census back in Numbers chapter one, a very ominous note, because we're reading an exhaustive list of people who failed to enter in because they did not believe and they forfeited God's promise. And for the next four decades, Israel is going to wander around meaninglessly in the wilderness, trapped in the elevator. Their only purpose to wait for everyone to die off just to hurry up and die already, Mom and Dad, so that we can move this plot forward. And by Numbers chapter 20, which Amy read for us, the time is almost up. Years have passed. This could have been a much longer book, by the way, if you're complaining. And now it's a whole new generation. The last of the old ones is almost gone, and these are all the kids, people who've been born in a tent in the desert or who were taken by the hand by Mom and Dad, leaving Egypt. It's a whole new generation about to enter in. And the story of Numbers 20 begins in the first month, Abib, April, which incidentally is the month of the Passover, the time of the symbolic reenactment of their deliverance from Egypt when the people were forcibly reminded of the powerful salvation of God, the month of all months in the year when Israel should have been filled with thanksgiving for the past and hope for the future and confidence that no matter what they faced, God would get them through that. And now they've arrived at the desert of Sin, at Kadesh. Moses' older sister Miriam has died. She's been buried. Even this prophetess, this worship leader, will not make it. You can only imagine how Moses must have been affected watching his big sister's body being lowered into the ground. There's not much time to grieve because now there's a new problem for the leadership to deal with. There's no water. No water and hundreds of thousands of people who need to drink Now, we're obviously talking about a legitimate physical need here, right? One of the most urgent physical needs you can have, because as we know, thirst and dehydration set off a whole chain of physical responses that begin to destroy your body, low blood pressure, overheating, increased heart rate, exhaustion. And if that dehydration is not tended to quickly, it will be lethal and you will be gone within days. So this is a very pressing issue that needs to be dealt with. And the people gather in opposition to Moses and Aaron. And they're very crabby, these people. And they say to Moses, if only we died when our brothers were struck down, we're actually filled with regret that God's judgment did not take us out. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness for us all to die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? Look around, there's no grapes, there's no figs, there's no pomegranates, there's no grapevines, and there's no water to drink. They need to vent their panic, their fear, their anger on someone, and of course, the leaders are the obvious targets. It's all Moses and Aaron's fault, isn't it, for leading the people into this dead end. The irony, of course, is that if only Israel had had just a little faith, they would have been in the promised land years and years ago, enjoying all the grain and figs, grapevines and pomegranates they could wish for. And yes, that had been the sin of a previous generation, but it's quickly becoming obvious that this new generation would have reacted exactly the same way. They're just as faithless. They're just as unbelieving. They're just as rebellious. They're just as pig-headed as their parents have been. And by their actions, they're fully endorsing the rebellion of their parents. But of course, they blame others. I don't know if it's possible for a meme to be prophetic but there's one of a guy riding a bicycle. It's actually taken from a, from a French comic. And the first it's three panels. And the first panel, he's on his bicycle and he's holding a stick in his right hand. And the second panel, he leans forward and he puts the stick between the spokes of his wheel. And the final panel, he's lying on the ground in the fetal position. And the caption reads, why would God do this to me? That is the book of Numbers right there. Perhaps it's prophetic for you today. I'll just leave that on your conscience because we do that, don't we? We mess things up for ourselves and then we get angry at God. God, how could you allow this to happen? Why didn't you stop me? And this is exactly what Israel is doing, blaming Moses and Aaron and behind them, God, for their own sin. You know, they they really should have had a little faith. Because after Sinai, all these experiences that happened before Sinai get mirrored afterwards. And there'd been a very similar occasion in Exodus chapter 17, where there also was no water. And God had told Moses, strike the rock, and the water will come out. And sure enough, this geyser appeared, and the Israelites slaked their thirsts, and they were taken care of. And surely, before they died, mom and dad would have mentioned that story to their children. And now it's happening all over again. And instead of reminding themselves of that, they've proven they've learned nothing in 40 years. So Moses and Aaron go to the entrance of the tabernacle. They fall on their faces to intercede for the people. And the glory of the Lord appears to them. And God's voice gives them very specific instructions. Take the staff, the Lord says, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. And you will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. Notice, by the way, there's no rebuke from God. There's no threatening of judgment. There's no promise of punishment, even though, as verse 13 makes clear, the people are really quarreling against the Lord and not against Moses and Aaron. But you know the amazing thing is that God's determination to bless is far stronger even than Israel's determination to rebel. God listens to his people's needs, and somehow he ignores all the bitterness, all the unbelief, all the bad attitude. He listens to his people's needs, however poorly expressed, and he takes the responsibility to meet them. God's instructions were very clear and very specific, and Moses begins to do what God commands. He takes the rod from the Lord's presence. And he gathers the whole assembly together in front of the rock. And so far, Moses is doing exactly what God had told him to do. And then he starts to ad lib a little. He starts to do a little little improv. You know, whenever a preacher says something really stupid, nine times out of ten, he strayed from his notes and said something that popped into his head on the spur of the moment, which seems really brilliant at the time. And then your wife really lets you have it in the taxi on the way home. Moses is not sticking to his notes. He's not sticking to the script God had given him, which had no dialogue, had no monologue, had no speech. Moses decides to open his big mouth and let it rip. Now, this is not the first attack that Moses has had to endure in the book of Numbers. His capacity to take abuse has been remarkable. Again and again, Moses is accused, he's attacked, he's verbally assaulted. People assign him the worst possible motives despite his faithful service, and he says nothing. In fact, Numbers 12 tells us, and I'm assuming it wasn't Moses who wrote this, the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. And only the world's meekest man would have put up with these people for 40 horrible years. Moses is an unbelievably selfless leader. He heroically intercedes for Israel when they rebel, and God's telling him, Moses, let me, please, let me just wipe these people off the face of the earth, and I'm going to start all over with you and your family. And Moses passes that test. He intercedes. He's the mediator. He says, God, please go with your people. And Moses goes along to guide and care and shepherd this most Troublesome and provoking generation. That after four decades, his patience is wearing thin. He's 120 years old, and he's cranky. Listen up, you rebels, he shouts. Must we bring water for you from this rock? And then he raises his hand, and he smashes the rock twice with the staff, and water gushes out, and the entire community and their livestock drinks their fill. The story is not over, though. Previous narratives in Numbers prime us for the fact that God's going to judge the people. But actually, God has some very shocking news for Moses and Aaron. He says, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Moses and Aaron, you're not going to make it. You're not going to be among those who cross over the Jordan into the promised land. You will see it from afar, but you're not going to enter in. You will not have the privilege of being at the head of God's people when they enter into their inheritance. It's one of the great puzzles of biblical scholarship is to exactly what it was that Moses and Aaron did wrong. But if you compare very carefully with what Moses did with what God instructed, and if there's anything you should pick up from these books is that God is very particular and very precise that his instructions be followed exactly the way he gave them. It's not a situation to kind of make it things up as you go along. God gives instructions for a reason, and you see in these books what happens when people don't follow them. Fire falls from the sky, the earth opens up, people die when they're careless. God had told Moses, speak to the rock. Moses does not speak to the rock. He speaks to the people and he strikes the rock. He picks up the microphone to unleash his frustration on the people of God. All his self-pity, his wounded pride, and even pent-up rage, he unloads on the people that he condemns and denounces. Moses forgot that the prophet is called to speak for God's interests, not his own. And this passage is a stern warning of the danger of real zeal for God, a genuine passion for God's holiness, to become twisted into a vengeful chastisement of the sheep. And that is not the heart of God. And when leaders begin to do that, they're no longer fit to lead. It's a sobering lesson to all pastors and shepherds. It's very easy to lecture and berate people and express your disappointment in them and assume that you're speaking for God. That's not what the shepherd is called to do. The German pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, fled Germany in the 1930s. Then he became convicted while he was in New York City. God has called me to go back and suffer with his people. And how can I face Germany after the war if I have not been there with them? And he went back and he started an underground seminary near the Polish border. And he wrote a little thin little book called Life Together about his experience of Christian community in that time. And he writes in there, a pastor should never complain about his congregation, certainly never to other people, but also not to God. A congregation has not been entrusted to him in order that he should become its accuser before God and men. That job's already filled. The church already has an accuser. And he's doing a superb job, I might add. That is not my job or any pastor's job to take up the satanic role of accusing, berating, and tearing down the people of God. However sinful, however rebellious, however unbelieving. How tempting it is, not just for pastors, to mistake our own egos for God's glory and to misrepresent the gracious heart of God and to unleash our frustration on people for their lack of spiritual progress speaking as a father so easy is it not to be continually expressing irritation anger and disappointment towards our children but let's be honest it can be incredibly aggravating and we can get in this mode of constantly correcting rebuking snapping at them telling them what they're doing wrong and spend less and less time affirming delighting in Rejoicing in and embracing, not the heart of God. And I think we get off track because we forget that correction is not for my good, but for their good. It's not about me being annoyed and inconvenienced and exhausted. It's about helping helping them and expressing God's care. That's what Moses forgot. You rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Now suddenly it's... Moses and Aaron, who are the ones bringing the water out of the rock. Confusing the power of God, to which they should have been directing people, to their own agency. Almost as though God's might was something that they had on tap, that they could control and use when they wanted to. And he raises his arm, which is actually a very significant phrase in Numbers, because it's the exact word used for what's described as sinning with the uplifted hand. There are sins that we do in ignorance, in carelessness, which are easily forgiven. But there's sin with an uplifted hand, which is an expression for knowingly and deliberately rebelling against God. Moses is accusing Israel of being the rebels. But actually, in misusing his ministry, he's the one who's standing against God. And he strikes the rock twice with his staff instead of speaking to it. And therefore, Moses and his passive brother Aaron are judged. After 40 years, Moses is no longer fit to lead God's people. It's time for him to stand aside and for a new leader to come forward. You know, Numbers is not the most encouraging book, because again and again, you read about rebellion and unbelief and disobedience. But actually, this book is about God's determination to bless even when his people sin. And there's this amazing story later in the book, which, as I recall, happens right after yet another story of rebellion, where this pagan king, Balak, hires a sorcerer named Balaam. He pays him money to use his powerful magic to put a hex on the people. But when this sorcerer opens his mouth, he is unable to speak the curses he'd been paid to do, and he can only speak these powerful, incredible blessings that God has placed on his tongue. And he actually has to return the money to the king and apologize profusely. I'm sorry, I wasn't able to curse. I could only bless them. In the midst of all this rebellion and all this unbelief and disobedience, God is turning curses into blessings for his people. And these powerful words are spoken over them about multiplication and fruitfulness and safety and victory. A promise that a star one day is going to arise from Jacob. And lead God's people. Numbers is about more than lamenting the rebellion and unbelief of God's people. And it's true, we see ourselves when we read this book. It should just be a collection of mirrors that we just turn over and look at our own dumb faces again and again. Because do we not find it hard to believe ourselves? The things that God has promised seem so hazy and unreal, and the wilderness is right here. And it seems like the only thing that exists. And we're the morons taking the stick and putting it in the spokes again and again and flying over the handlebars. But God has not given us this book to accuse, but to announce. He has not sent me today to speak words of shame, but to point to living water. Your sin and your unbelief serious as they are, and God calls us today to repent of those things, will not have the last word. Your incredible ability to screw things up for yourself is not going to have the last word. Your lack of faith will not have the last word. God gets that word. And it is a word of blessing. I'm sorry to tell you as we go through the series that this will not be the last example of Rebellion and disobedience among God's people. We have a lot of books with a lot of garbage to get through. But the greatest sign of God's determination to bless is that He is going to send Jesus, His Son. Moses was a great leader. He's a towering figure in the Old Testament. But in the end, He was flawed and He failed. And there will be many other leaders, there will be many other kings, there will be many other prophets, some greater than others. All of them are flawed. All of them will fail, but not Jesus. He alone fully and completely represents the heart of God among us. He has come not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He is completely clear-eyed about the sin of his people, and he weeps over it. But he did not come to strike, but to be struck himself to release God's grace. And it's true. We do need to take these words as... A serious warning. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that these things were written for our instruction, for our example. And he points out that God was not pleased with most of God's people in the wilderness. Their bodies were scattered all over the ground. These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. There is warning about falling short and failing to enter God's rest if we neglect such a great salvation. But Paul also points out That in the wilderness, the people drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. An amazing statement. That rock was Christ. All along, Jesus was going along with the people of God, present to supply all their needs. And the rock is here again for God's people today. Strangely, it's a movable rock that goes along with the people of God as we wander around in this liminal space. And Jesus is present as the source of the water of life, fresh, clean, cold, inexhaustible. We've all come here today in various degrees of thirst and dehydration. Our tongues are swollen, our lips are cracked. And Jesus says to us again today, come everyone, drink freely. Just drink. There's no rebuke. There's no accusation. Just come and drink. Everything you need for life is in me right now. Life eternal, life abundant. Just come and drink and drink and drink. It's the only way to survive the wilderness. Going in again and again to Jesus continuously. We're not doomed to die. Our bones are not condemned to be scattered over the wilderness. Christ is with us, guaranteeing all the promises of God, their yes and amen in him. So shall we pray now and ask God to help us by faith drink deeply of the water of life? Heavenly Father, we come to you and we do confess our own disobedience, our own faithlessness, our own slowness to trust in what you have promised. Now We ask that you would forgive us, Lord, and by your Holy Spirit, help us to step forward in faith, to close our hands firmly around what you have promised. Lord, we are so grateful for the gift of Christ. We are tired, we're weary, we're crabby, we're discouraged. Lead us by the hand to him and help us to drink. Refresh our souls, Lord. Refresh our spirits. Don't let us become weary and give up. Help us to press forward to receive all that you have secured for us in him. In his mighty name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org.
0: Thanks for listening.